The Jericho Network on Westwood One. The following program is presented by the Jericho Network in association with Podcast One. Have you heard about the new Podcast One app? There is no other podcast app like this. Download the all-new Podcast One app now in the App Store or on Google Play. You can find out everything about your favorite shows and get more content from my show, Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Find articles, social media, episodes, and even make playlists. It's easy to comment and connect with other show fans, too. We all have our little community on here. You can share your favorite content and see behind-the-scene photos, which is generally just me and my dog. Uh, But anyway, uh, plus get a 360 video or watch a bunch of shows in virtual reality. Reality. Plus, get a 360 video or watch a bunch of shows in virtual reality. There's over a thousand videos on there right now. It's like you're in the studio, which in my case would be a bedroom on the top floor. Right. Uh, Anyway, uh, the new Podcast One app looks so cool and has so many things you can do, including fun things like rewards for listening. Then again, listening to my show, it's its very own reward. I'm telling you, it's it's fantastic. Uh, So, what are you waiting for? Download the new Podcast One app in the App Store or on Google Play now. Podcast One presents Rock Talk 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 with Mitch LaFawn. All the rockers, all the stories. This is incredible. Now, Now, here's your host, respected rock journalist, Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to another episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Joining me this week, former... Whitesnake guitarist Adrian Vandenberg. And on the other side, I come back with former Iron Maiden singer Blaze Bailey. Now, uh, the one thing about those guys, and Adrian especially, of course, he was in Whitesnake with David Coverdale, one of my all-time favorite singers. And so just before we start the show, I want to start talking with or about singers. And so I have got on the line with me from... Canadian or iconic Canadian band Killer Dwarfs. It is the one, the only Russ Dwarf. Good day, Russ. Hey, Mitch. How you doing, buddy? We haven't done this in a neon. Yes, we. In fact, we haven't done this on on the new show on, here on, on your new show. Yes, yeah, on so we, Rock Talk. On Rock Talk. So we need to do this more often. So let, let me ask you just quickly a generic question, just to start, and then we'll see uh, where we go. Okay. But what what makes a good rock singer? Oh my God! Bad attitude and big feet. I don't know. <laughs> uh, it's I, I don't know. It's it's hard to say. Like uh, you know, who who uh, when I was a kid, influenced I and I hadn't seen a concert, but it was probably Alice Cooper. I think it's the character. The you know, it's not about technical. Uh, it's not technical, like vocally or anything. It's more of a like a you know what the vibe you get off them, the charisma, the the charisma they you know put out like you know yeah. alice cooper when i was like you know 11 it blew my mind and i had never seen a video there was way before you click kids and all that stuff right so right. i think it's an i think it's an attitude or whatever you know i don't think it's about tech technical ability right because uh, you know look you have bob dylan and and you have lots of lots of singers that people you know it, 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 it it's uh well it, it's to everyone's taste Right, but you, you know, but you're right about that because you look at some of the most popular singers out there, and, and I, I always like to use Madonna as, as an example. Mm-hmm. She is not an operatic singer. She is not mm-hmm. a super—I uh, don't want to say talented, but she, she's just not you know a classically mm-hmm. trained singer. 
but you cannot right. deny that she's got a personality and that she's intriguing to watch and, and you know, just yeah. something exceptional. Well, Rock-wise, who are your sort of three favorites? I mean, are we looking sort of old school, Phil Lynott, Bon Scott, and stuff well, like that? or Well, what? absolutely, absolutely. And like you said, like, with the, just to finish the, the Madonna thing, yeah, it's about the believability of the song to deliver that message or whatever you get from it. It could be, you know from nothing fluff to something sentimental and deep. But for me, right. uh, favorite singers for sure. Uh, the coop is right up there. As you know, I love the coop at, uh, you know, Robert plant, obviously, uh, you know, Rob Halford, uh, uh, you know, yeah. Dave, Lonesome Dave, Lonesome Dave from Foghat. Like there's a, wow. there's so many, so many, uh, great, you know, David Lee Roth, there's a million singers that are so, uh, you know, yeah. But it's about the delivery. It's about the the, the performance. The, you know, yeah, the performance and the the believability. I think. And and let's talk about that because on the other part of the show we've got Blaze Bailey. Now Blaze is a great mm-hmm. singer. He mm-hmm. delivers the songs great. Totally. But for some reason he's not the voice of Iron Maiden, and so for many fans he wasn't accepted. And and that's got to be a difficult. I mean, for you know, you're you're the singer of the Killer Dwarves. If you brought in Mitch mm-hmm. Lafon to sing for the Killer Dwarves, nobody would care. Uh, we'd, talk have to me pay, we'd have to Well, well <laughs> it, it wouldn't cost as much. Right. Well, that's true. I work for free. I, I, I think. I think there you go. The universal rock word. I think uh, it, it's. It almost seems like from the genre like that we love the most, like the the hair metal or the seventies to nineties. 1990 the you know metal kind of gag you can't replace those voices you just can't it, it, it just it, it just it's such a a branding i hate to use that corporate but it term is, but because there are some voices you know, that they're just indistinguishable i mean you just cannot separate them from their band it. you know no matter how much you try i guess like the guy from journey sounds like the guy you could be a mimic like Rich Little, but you're, it's not going to be the same as the guy. It's like years ago, I saw Chicago at a show and there was like, I think it was like the original trombone player or something, but the vocalist who was like playing Peter Cetera, he did it unbelievably. Like you close your eyes and it's Chicago. But I think people still love the person that delivered that stuff. The first it, I can't imagine trying to replace someone in an iconic band as a vocalist. It's probably probably the worst gig you could want to, you know, deal with. I, I give it to these guys that try to, or that you know, were hired for all these, you know, rats and uh, well, quiet you know, riots. We, we do have a Canadian and, boy that's doing really good. I mean, you grew up, or we grew up. Well, maybe not grow up. But we we've been around hmm. the scene where Galwin, and then of course Lawrence hmm. Galwin came around from Toronto, and totally. And he's got that job of replacing. Uh, Dennis mm-hmm. D. Young and Sticks, an icon, an and icon. Absolute absolutely, icon. and and you know what, Larry or Lawrence or Gallon, whatever you want to, mm-hmm. he, he's nailing it. I mean, he that Sticks well, is as popular thought, as they've ever been. There's no doubt about it. But you know, you have to, you know, there there there's probably exceptions to the rule and everything. Right. And you know, it, it's all chemistry with the band members too. If they like the guy or whatever, it's not like you have to live with these people and, and Larry is like a, a good, nice person and a super talent. So it, it, it depends on the circumstance. It's, it's so hard. I wouldn't want to 
to be Blaze or uh, Ripper or these cats that stepped yeah, into those they... shoes. They, that's a big that's big balls, and I handed to them for uh, pulling that off because. And, and thank God it was probably earlier before all the social media, because now it's just a vile uh, bunch of horseshit that goes on. Yeah. Anybody, anybody does one, you know, there's no positiveness, which it should be. It's only music folks. Let's, let's get over it and let's try to love each other. Yep, you know, yeah. I, I'm not a big, I'm not a big hippie or anything, but no. come on now. Yeah. And it's too bad for blaze because he does, he does a great job and he delivers the song so well. Yeah. Totally. But, his name's not Bruce Dickinson, and so right. it was it, it was a lost leader right from the start. There was just no hope of totally. ever becoming Iron Maiden just, singer. Just watch that movie, Almost Famous. Is that the movie? Yes. No, it's not. That's not. Is that the one with the? That's the one that tells Donnie my story. Walton? No, I'm just kidding. No, uh, is, is that, that the Judas Priest one? No, that's no, Rockstar. Which one is it? That's Rockstar. Yeah, Rockstar. Watch that. I just saw that recently, and that was hilarious. Yeah. But it's the same kind of. Same kind of thing. It's it, anyways. All you singers out there that want to be in an iconic band that needs a new singer, you know, I hope you have thick skins. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, uh, and you know we'll finish I mean? with this before we move on to Adrian Vandenberg okay. of uh, formerly mm. of White Snake. Uh, cool. Are you a are you a White Snake fan? Were you a David Coverdale guy? Because I just personally think that his voice is fantastic, and those songs. I mean, what forty forty five years of of. Deep Purple and White Snake and David Cover. I mean, what a, what a voice. Fabulous. No, he's amazing. He's definitely in. He's like such a classy, cool cat. You know what I mean? He's like, uh, yeah. he's, got, he's got it all. Yeah, he's absolutely. Like, you know, there's no doubt about it. And those songs are great. Still with the Night, all that stuff. Fabulous players. I saw, I saw White Snake with you last year. What are you talking about? Yeah, that's two right. Years ago or something, didn't we? Yeah, then at the Casino Rama, but uh, before yeah, we before tried we to break into catering, remember? <laughs> exactly. No, but uh, before we wrap up, uh, Killer Dwarves, you have toured with Iron Maiden, correct? We have toured with Iron Maiden. I just Did saw you... Steve uh, two weeks ago. Oh, that's actually. right. You uh, you were with was... Steve. I, I saw a picture of yeah, you. Yeah, you the came guys. to Toronto and you ne- you came to Toronto and you never even said hello. So uh, you're on <laughs> you're in the shit you're on the shit list. <laughs> I I, I yes, drove in, saw Metallica, drove home. It was it was very much yeah, an in and out know. kind of thing. Well, I like that. You didn't stay at my house. It's good. But you, uh, <laughs> I know, uh, but the, but all you know, a comic in all seriousness, uh, Maiden, uh, the the best uh, people on the planet and it's a you know obviously apparently obvious why they're so uh, fabulous and great people and everyone loves them because they are you you get what you see and uh, they're the nicest folks i i those with ask daryl dwarf he'll tell you ask him what his favorite tour ever was and it was seventh son of the seventh son yeah and did you tour with white snake ever no huh we never toured with white snake no I and uh, that would have been fun, though. Ever do shows with Gowan back in the day, back when, or sh- show we up on a? We did. We didn't. I I've met Larry a couple of times, but uh, no, we never did. We were kind of like five to ten years behind them. You know what I mean? We we saw them like Lawrence Gowan had a band called Cinema Face. Wow. Uh, no, it was no, it wasn't Cinema Face. I'm wrong. Daryl will be uh, correcting me. It's called Rheingold. It was like a Genesis cover band, but you know we saw him at the Gasworks and stuff, and multi-talented uh, people, right? Him and his brother and everything, like yeah. super talented. Great. There's no talent in Canada. There's no, oh, only under the ice and snow. No oh, plays. We've got uh, what Triumph. We've got 
Killer Dwarves. We've got Ooh. Rush. We've got Helix. Mm-hmm. We've got Honeymoon Suite. We've got even Anne April Murray. Wine. Yeah, April Wine. And, and Wine. listen, Anne, Anne Murray, you can't deny. Celine Dion, you may or may not like her music, but she's a talent. Hey, uh, hey you know. we're, a musical co- we're a musical country. Just... Yeah, exactly. I was going to say name, name five, five people from Winnipeg that are like uh, international superstars on Mars, right? You know, Neil Young, right. Randy Bachman, yeah. Burton Cummings, uh, Joni Mitchell, you know, uh, stop me. Yeah, and exactly. Ken, well, uh, we'll stop you with this. Last, yeah. The last thing I'll say, though, will be uh, I love Kenny Shields. Uh, with, uh, and there's a great Canadian icon, iconic singer. And, uh, you know, that's a sad, that's a sad tale there. But, uh, you know, go buy some street heart. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, the Killer Dwarves, of course, we're going to have something to buy very soon. You've got a live album that was recorded at the Brass Monkey in Ottawa and in Toronto and Whitehorse and somewhere else. Vancouver, I believe. Vancouver, yes, apparently. Yes, an album's coming out. It should be, uh, I'm I'm thinking early fall. They're they're saying August, but I'm not buying it. So, uh, and uh, yeah, we have a new live album. It's our. It'll be our second live album. So, and, and and I have a great title for you. It should be called <clears throat> Mitch Lafon Presents Killer Dwarves Live. That's okay, that, done. That's your album. Send title. me the font. Send me the font. <laughs> send Chris Hale the font. It'll be in uh, Spider Man font. It'll be in, Mitch. It'll... Mitch, yeah, <laughs> Mitch Lafont. <laughs> Mitch Lafont. And uh, with that, mm-hmm. I will be right back All with right. the one, the okay. only, Adrian Vandenberg. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFond. Rock Talk. Big thank you to Rust War for that discussion about singers. Uh, let's get right into this interview with Adrian, formerly, of course, of Whitesnake. New band is called Moon Kings. They had a first album that came out a few years ago. It was absolutely fantastic. The new album should be out later this year, and uh, we talk about that. We talk about Whitesnake and all that wonderful stuff. Stay tuned after the break. I will be back with singer Blaze Bailey, formerly of Iron Maiden. And after Blaze, a little special look back to the 80s with Greg Kinn. And so without further ado, here is guitarist Adrian Vandenberg. We are speaking with guitarist Adrian Vandenberg. The new album, um, well, from Vandenberg's Moon Kings, is coming out very soon. In fact, we don't know when. Adrian, you're gonna you're gonna fill us in on all that stuff. But, all right, uh, no problem at all. I'm, I'm I'm dying to fill everybody in. You know, it's about time. It's about time. But uh, before we get to the album. You know, for us here in North America, we haven't seen the Vandenberg art uh, collections. We haven't seen you in a concert hall here for a while. Sort of, where have you been the last 10 or 15 years? Yeah, um, a lot of people, uh, they're actually the the most interesting rumors going around. um, I keep hearing the last couple of years since I resurfaced again, um, that people were, uh, there were a lot of people apparently thinking that I turned into a hermit on um, on like the um, uh, the moors of of Holland, like in the, Holland is tiny, as, as most people know, but we do have like some very rural areas where you know where there's sheep and um, and 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 moors and and all kinds of uh, mystical stuff. But well, sheep are not that mystical, but um, the moors are. And um, I heard a persistent rumor that I was you know withdrawn as a hermit and um, didn't want to face the world again. Well. That's not true, let me tell you. Now, what happened was um, when um, Dave and I talked about um, this baby stop, uh, stopping with Whitesnake with touring and everything in 99, um, I decided to catch up first on my, um, 
my painting, uh, my art painting activities because I had a couple of um, exhibitions um, in demand and I wanted to finally do that. And, and at the same time, a um, couple of months after I got home, uh, well, about nine months, I suppose, my girlfriend at the time um, appeared to be pregnant. So um, I didn't, I thought, man, you know, if I'm going to tour now, then the little girl is never going to, uh, you know, know who her dad is, especially uh, since three years after her birth, um, we broke up, uh, sadly enough, but um, then it became even, even more clear that um, I should stay close until she was old enough um, uh, when I could explain to her what um, uh, what my situation is, you know, a musician, and, um, and once I start recording, then you've got to start doing some tours and, sh- and shows, and you're going to be away, so... All that took, um, initially I, I was kind of planning, well, you know, I'm going to stay low for about four or five years until the girl would, you know, be good enough at talking and to understand what the deal was. But it ended up being 11 years or something. So I always have to think about uh, John Lennon's words, you know, that uh, life is what happens to you while you're making other plans. Well, that was definitely my case. So... All kinds of stuff happened, and um, I just went with the flow, basically. Yeah, well, and well, and here you are now. Now, you did mention going, of course, with White Snake up until '99. I do want to get into the Restless Heart uh, tour and, and uh, stalkers in Tokyo because I, I just think that that stuff is so underappreciated and, and overlooked by a lot of fans, and there's just a lot of great stuff on that. But um, thank you, thank you. But let's get to Moon Kings first, because that, that's, that's, the, that's the proper place to start. 2014, you put out the first Moon Kings album, Vandenberg's Moon Kings, because you're allowed to use your name. We, know, we all know about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Surprising that a court would say you could use your own name, right? Yeah, I was really shocked, you know. <laughs> I thought I was going to have to call myself Mr. Smith or Mickey Mouse or something, but... <laughs> But, um, but it made my dad name. very happy at the time too. He, 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 he was actually more shocked than I, than I because, well, you, you you've been in the show business long enough, and and everybody who's, you know, who's a little bit aware of what kind of funny stuff can go on in the show business, my dad wasn't aware of that. He he wasn't a, you know a jazz cat, and um, he was just shocked that somebody can can actually sue your you for your own name and 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 try to prohibit you. To use your own name, so it was very surrealistic, but at the same time very energy um, drawing because um, yeah, you still have to defend yourself with lawyers and and, and all that stuff. And in the end, it, it, they kept they kept going on and going on, and it, it ended up taking about five years, you know, about six lawsuits. And um, I won them all, fortunately. So I'm not going to be Mr. Smith Moon Kings. <laughs> it's, <gonna be. laughs> it, it, it's just, but it, it is, it, it is, and that's for a discussion for another time. But how your name, when it, when you use it as a band name, then it becomes a brand name, then it changes all kinds of. But anyway, but Vandenberg Moon Kings, uh, two thousand seventeen. Now you finished the album. Yeah. It, is it finally. a two thousand seventeen release, or is it something that's going to yes. be okay? So so talk yeah, to it, me it's, about um, this. It's going to be uh, released in um, very early November. Okay. So it's actually not not too long. Um, I can't I, I can't wait to be honest. You know, it's, I mean, every, I know everybody says says that kind of stuff. But in my case, we had so much uh, delay for various reasons um, that in the end, you know, we we recorded the album in in the, in the same 
um, uh, uh, period of time, uh, about probably about a month and a half of recording and, um, and, and a week and a half mixing, that's it, you know, it's the same as the first album, but um, we had to um, stretch the time for, for a couple of reasons. First of all, um, two years ago, I contracted a Lyme infection, a Lyme disease, and um, in my garden, there was a tick in my, um, in my leg and um, ended up um, being infected by Lyme disease. So uh, the first half year after that, I was kind of pretty miserable. I'd say you, you feel like you have a, like a very serious flu and you know, you're really tired. The last thing you want to do is, you know, try to be creative because your brain kind of shuts off. So right. that took a while. And, and then the funny bit comes. Um, the singer in my band has got um, a very big agro- agricultural uh, farm in uh, in Holland, um, not too far away from, from where I live. And he's, he's got about 100 hectares. I don't know what a hectare is. It's an acre or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm in Canada. We use metric, so I know hectares. All right, yeah. Well, well, it's a hectares, and he, he's got this huge farm, um, and he's got two busy seasons in the year, of course, you know, like so in and a reaping season, harvesting season, and um, because of my uh, my Lyme disease thing for the first, well, almost a year actually, um, we got into a different planning, and and we ended up ending up uh, right in, in in one of his busiest seasons, and so I couldn't break him into the new songs that I've written and, and, and the lyrics and all that stuff. So I had to wait for that. And then, and then some, some other stuff happened with the record company and this and that and that. And before you realize it, you know, we recorded um, most of the, well, actually all the basic tracks already in October last year. And then we, we had to, you know, to wait until um, about a month and a half ago to finish the whole thing up. But I'm extremely happy with it, like everybody says about his own record. But um right. Every, I'm sure everybody's going to be pretty surprised. You know, it's it's it's. I'm um, I'm always trying to to go one step up up from the the album before, and um, um, I definitely wanted to try to um, avoid the second album syndrome that um, the right. bands the, the sophomore get, jinx, you know? right? Now, 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 in terms of musical style, is it more experimental? Is it just straight ahead rock and roll? Uh, because obviously I haven't heard it yet. You I mean you you literally finished it last night? So we're we're talking twelve hours after you finished yeah. it, basically. Um, what are we doing musically? Because the first one had uh, you know the rock moments and stuff. And and what I like about the vocalist and um, and correct me if I say his name wrong, but Jan Hoving. Yeah, that's pretty good actually for um, for an American for a non-Dutch. Yeah, yeah. Ho- Hoving is 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 is. is, is Pronounceable, I suppose, for um, and Jan, yeah, Jan, Jan is, is a name used in, in in America too, you know. So it's yeah. good, Jan Hoving. Yeah, he's, he's a remarkable, he's a story in itself. But uh, go on, sorry. But because I I find that his timber and his style is really not that very different of David Coverdale, and I mean that not in a insulting he's copying, it, but in a this guy's got powerful vocals. I mean he's he's got. Oh yeah, he's, he's, yeah, he definitely does, and I'm so happy that. I accidentally ran into him because I didn't even know there were vocalists that good in Holland, you know, but uh, I found out soon enough that he was pretty much the only one. But, um, yeah, you know, um, Jan is um, in his mid-40s, and he grew up um, uh, with influences like um, uh, Coverdale, of course, Paul Rogers, uh, Otis Redding, um, early Rod Stewart, and... um, 
uh, various really good singers from from the whole period before, you know, when he was since he was a teen basically, and um, he kind of mixed all those influences of, of course together. But he, he does have the timbre, like you say, and uh, a couple of you know on the internet there's always uh, a couple of whiners who who, who, who who try to you know to to comment on on right. on whatever and a couple of them uh, were of course saying he, he tries to be david Coverdale. well you can't you can't pretend to have a, a voice you know you're born with a voice and you don't you know if you're born with a voice like vince neil you, you can you can work your ass off but you're never going to sound like david Coverdale because it's just a different kind of timbre and right. Yeah, Jan was fortunate enough to be born with a timbre like that. You know, he's got this big, warm, bluesy voice. So, yeah, yeah, and he, and he sounds great. So, so musically, then, is it is it just a straightforward rock album? Yeah, it it it's, um, it, it continues uh, logically the path um, that we started on with the first album. Um, it's kind of predominantly blues rock based rock. To put it that, but but with more melody than you normally would have, you know. So it's it's very much along the lines of the first album, but but it's a couple of steps. I, th- I think it's a couple of steps up in energy, and also the sound um, is um, way closer to our live sound, um, which we developed, of course, during con- um, during concerts. But um, um, yeah, the first album, I, I really uh, since I produced. The albums myself. I, I, I wanted to make like some kind of a counter statement to um, lots of rock records that sound very similar sound-wise uh, to my ears. Uh, so I wanted to, to, you know, to make it pretty much bone dry, and um, um, the guitar is not, not not overly distorted like a lot of people do. You know, so it's harder to play then because you don't have all the the nice. Um, camouflage that distortion and, and compression and stuff in guitar sounds uh, create but at the same time it's more honest you know it's 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 right in your face and and that's that remains on this album um there is definitely a couple of songs that are um uh following a little bit of a different path than on the first album although although in the same you know rock vein but um Listening back to it, I can really tell that that we've grown, of course, as a unit, you know, as a band. Because with the first album, we we've never performed together, you know. We we rehearsed the songs and we went into the studio and recorded them very much live with a bunch of, you know, a couple of overdubs and stuff, and that's it. And we recorded it the same way, but uh, I could tell right away when as soon as we started playing in the studio, I noticed the difference with the first album, which is logical, you know, because we've done a lot of concerts right. over the last. Two years. Well, and you're gelling as an outfit. I mean, you're. you're yeah, exactly. That's it, and and that that really happened, and I'm, yeah, I'm 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 just really happy, you know. What I always try to achieve is a record, make a record, that I that I would buy myself in in a heartbeat, and and because you never know what's going to happen, you know, you never know if it's going to be successful, or if radio is going to pick it up, or whatever, and so first you have to please yourself, um, in the end, and. Um, if you do that, you know, you can't really go wrong. If you only sell three records, you still made a record that you're proud of yourself. And, and, and that's what I, what I really aim for. So right. I don't want to disappoint myself, you know. Yeah. And now, you, your career is storied. I mean, there's, there's everything 
Um, and I, I do want to talk about Manic Eden as well, because that's another great overlooked album. But Yeah, um, yeah. I think some of the stories but, uh, from Whitesnake and, you know, working with Steve I and, and Vandenberg, Vandenberg, the band have been told. So I'm going to start with some of my personal favorites here. Um, yeah, go ahead. Um, 19, where was it, 97, I guess, the album Restless Heart comes out. And yeah. the story is, is that it was going to be a David Coverdale solo album, and the record company said, well, pff, that name's not going to sell, so... A compromise was reached, and it was called David Coverdale and Whitesnake. Um, talk to me about that album. First of all, did I get it right? I mean, was it sort of a compromise, the name, where the record company... I, th- I think it was, yeah. I wasn't completely involved in that part, uh, because as soon as we finished um, recording, I flew back home to see my mom and dad and, um, and my friends and stuff. So uh, we, David and I talked over the phone. He, he explained me that thing. I didn't originally know that he was trying... Or uh, wanting to to make a David Coverdale record, um, to me it wouldn't have made a difference because um, I love working with David. He's an amazing singer and always will be. And no matter if if you call it Mr. Smith, you know it's fine with me too, as long as you make a fantastic record. And um, that thing I heard later, David kind of explained to me that uh, indeed the record company says, well, uh, yeah, of course, you know, Whitesnake is is a very established name, and of course they want to sell records on that name, under that name. And um, the other thing was, of course, you know, that um, every artist um, has moments where you think, well, should I stay on this path or should I um, do something a little bit different? And, and and I suppose at the time, I remember David at the time was also thinking, uh, you know, if I'm, uh, am I going to continue the rock path or maybe uh, I'm, uh, do I want to make it a little bit more bluesy or more, uh, more toned down or... Whatever, so maybe that that made um it was a part of his um, contemplations uh, too. I don't know, you know. It's um, but in the end, um, I thought it was kind of funny. It's called David Coverdale's White Snake or something, and David Coverdale find... and White Snake. Oh called. yeah, yeah. I see. Yeah, <laughs> that's kind of kind of strange because it it would turn him into a split personality, you know. Because because David Coverdale uh, is it, White Snake. Yeah, he is White Snake. You know, <laughs> I mean. Uh, Whitesnake has got has had more lineup changes over the years than most people change their underwear, you know. So it's um, but you know, the the constant factor is David, and I'm proud to say that I'm the longest member um, ever in there because I, I was with with David for about 13 years or something, and it's a long time, you know. And uh, everything changed pretty much every album, and and that's always been the case. So. Either way, you know, it's it's it's, it's logical that David is Whitesnake. Bam, whoever is in the band, as long as David's in the band, it's Whitesnake. So I agree, it was a little funny. Talk to me about the songs, because there is one song, well, in fact, there's a bunch of songs on there, but uh, one in particular, Too Many Tears, which is... Oh, right, yeah. Oh, it, it is probably one of the best songs that... Now, the uh, songwriting-wise, is it you and David that wrote it, everything, or yeah. is it? Okay. So then, it's one of the best songs you and David uh, ever wrote. Uh, yeah, I think so too. I'm re- re- really proud of that one um, too, because we were on a uh, we were wanting to go on a bluesier path, which is which, which you can tell by the record because it's it's, a, it's more toned down than the two um, albums I was involved with before that. You know, the '87 album and the. Uh, slip of the tongue album that, that was stadium rock and we tried to keep our finger finger on the, on the pulse of um where the music was 
business was at at the time, and of course it was the grunge period and stuff, and everything was more toned down, or you know bands bands who couldn't who could hardly play an instrument suddenly became really big, and that's a pretty logical uh, trend um, in my opinion. You know, a similar thing happened in the in the seventies when uh, punk rock came up as, as like a reaction to all these great rock bands that, that played great guitar and played uh, and, and sang very well and you know so it, you're always going to get a counter movement to to what, what's been successful for a yeah. couple of years and in this case we were kind of caught up in the middle of it and and, and David and I thought well you know what we're going to stick to our guns and to, uh, and to our um, influences which is the blues and which is rock and, and you kind of blend it together and with one song, you end up a little bit more on the blue side, like Too Many Tears, and with another song like Restless Heart, you end up more on the rock side. So, yeah. and we we write very well together, and we really enjoy it. You know, um, actually, um, David is the only um, musician that I've ever written with, because in all my other bands, I write all the material myself and the lyrics too, because that's another thing that I really enjoy. You know, I I, I really enjoy fitting the lyrics to the vibe of the music that um, comes out of my finger. So, and um, I never thought I would enjoy um, uh, writing with another musician that mu- as much as I did with David. So that was a very interesting period, and I, I learned a lot too uh, from David's approach to uh, vocal lines and and and, and lyrics uh, as far as sound goes. You know, like like the way a word sounds. David is a master, in my opinion. To make it sound really great, you know, and 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 even if 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 a lyric would be pretty light as far as content goes or meaning goes, um, he he's a master at, at using great sounding words. So it it you, you a singer can really throw it away, you know, really really bark the the vocal lines and and make it powerful uh, because of certain sounds in, in in words and in sentences and stuff, and that's. Definitely one of the things that I learned from working with David uh, that I find that I use in my current songwriting too. So, yeah. It is, um, you know, we know that last year in August in 2016, you uh, joined Whitesnake for a performance for a few songs at a Tilburg concert. Is that something that you would like to rekindle at the at some point? Not, not necessarily Whitesnake, but... You and David either writing some songs for a Moon King album, or you and David writing some songs for a White Snake album, or, or is that a relationship you'd like to get going again? Well, you know, we, we always talk about it because we're we're very regular in touch, and and we also uh, we also uh, have the idea that sooner or later that that we will most likely do something together, whether like you said, like whether it's um, writing together or. Maybe something acoustic, or make a blues album, or something, you know. Um, so we'll see if it, uh, if it happens sooner or later. It probably will, and and if not, we're still the the same good friends. And he's very encouraging, you know. He's he was definitely a driving um, factor in the fact that um, finally I got you know back to writing and 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 put Moonkings together because every time we were on the phone, David said, "Come on, you lazy Dutchman, make an album and 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 get on the road and." The music business has changed very much, but um, in the end, you know that we're in this because of passion and and, and because you want to do it as long as you can, you know. And, and and that helped me motivate to finally 
you know, put the gloves on and start working on songs, which okay. I was really curious about whether it's got was you know what was going to happen in with well, my songwriting. Let me ask about that yeah. because because and let's take out the the lazy Dutchman thing for a second, but. <laughs> you, you you hadn't been doing stuff. Did in 2014 or 2013 when you started writing for the first Moon Kings and putting, did it feel right? Like yeah, this is what I should be doing. It or was it like, wow, this is interfering with me being a dad and me being at home? And I mean, did it feel right to get back at it? Oh, definitely more more than that. I, I was kind of, I was actually very surprised myself that um, it just um, flows out of my fingers and out of my brain, you know, I, I was curious. Um, I, I don't really live um, the regular dad life because my daughter lives with her mother, so she um, she stays with me um, on a regular basis, but um, I still lead, lead like some kind of a, of a somewhat vintage student kind of life like I've always done, you know, and um, so as soon as I picked up a guitar, um, an electric one, because in the meantime, I did play a little bit of acoustic just for my own entertainment and stuff. And But sometimes I didn't play for months, you know. So as soon as I picked up one of my Les Pauls, and I knew that once I was going to start writing, that I didn't want to have any preconceptions about, man, I, I want to write this kind of music or that kind of music. I've always made this kind of music ever since my very first uh, blues rock band that I put together when I was about 20 or something. Teaser. And I made my first album in the, exactly the same studio where I made those two Moon Kings albums. So that's pretty full circle, you could say. You, you it, made the, it, the Moon Kings album in the same album, in the same place that you did the Teaser albums? Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah, and the, the same studio. And it was, what was really kind of magical, actually, uh, was that uh, when... For the first Moon Kings album, when I started um, recording some acoustic guitars, um, the engineer put a microphone in front of the guitar, and it was one of those vintage Neumann microphones, like a $20,000 guitar uh, microphone. And um, I thought, wow, man, who knows? Maybe that's the same one of the same microphones that I've used uh, for the teaser album. It could be. So I looked up at... Um, in my archives, um, because I knew there was somewhere there was a picture of me putting down the piano part um, with one of those big Neumann microphones dangling over the piano, and it appears to be exactly the same microphone because I could tell there was like a little dent right by the Neumann sticker that's on the microphone, and that's exactly on the same spot. You know, and microphones like that, you don't really drop. You know, so it's not like a microphone that's that gets um, banged back and forth. So it is definitely the same microphone that I used for uh, the piano part and the teaser album. So that was very Back to the Future-ish, so to speak. That's actually kind of cool. That's, that's a great very way to... Very cool, yeah. A great way to get you. Now, um, you mentioned acoustic, and, 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 and I just mentioned very cool. Something that was very cool was this Stalkers in Tokyo album that came out in Japan only. It has now sort of gone around the world through internet and stuff. But yeah, yeah, it is you and David Coverdale, just voice and guitar, no percussion, no drums, no keyboards, just you. And yeah, uh, in fact, I listened to it, uh, God, three times, four times in the last couple of weeks. It is magical. It is absolutely magical. Talk to me about that that 
tour, the, you know, those, those few shows, you did some TV appearances and stuff. Just What was it about that album and, and just working in that kind of context where everything is stripped away and it's just sort of this pure voice guitar thing going on? Yeah, it, it was such a great thing to do because um, up, up till then, we pretty much constantly uh, had been touring the world since 87 um, with uh, big Marshall stacks and the stadiums and all that stuff. And then um, when this request for the Japanese uh, show, uh, radio show came, um, uh, we were, we were in, a, in a, some kind of in the middle of a promotional tour with the two of us. We went through several countries, you know, to talk to the press about uh, the Restless Heart album and stuff. And um, um, then this Japanese um, press promoter from uh, a record company over there said, well, we like to do a, um, like a contest type of thing where the winner, uh, there were about 80 winners or something, or 60 or something like a small amount, um, where they could win a ticket for like a private concert in the radio studio. And we thought, well, great, let's do it, you know. So we rehearsed uh, for a couple of hours to, to strip down um, all the, the big stuff to, to the bare essentials, which is, like you said, just an acoustic guitar and um, and David's immense voice. So um, that's what we did. And we did the, the show. And, and w- once we did it and we heard um, afterwards, we of course, we wanted to hear what it sounded like. And... Japanese are really professional, so it sounded very good. But at the same time, we thought, well, we realized that it was going to be on the radio, so it was going to be bootlegged, so it was going to go all over the world. So uh, we thought, well, if it's going to get bootlegged anyway, we might as well put some little touches on it in um, in a studio the same evening to, to mix it just a little bit uh, more detailed because... We know exactly where you know where the voice goes up and where it goes down, and where the guitar maybe should be a little harder or softer or whatever. And so we mixed it uh, in about an hour the same evening, and um, we put it out. And um, we so we were ahead of the the bootleg versions of this radio show, and it sounds sounds a little bit better. And it was just a blast because we didn't really expect anything of it. We thought, well, let's put it out, you know. And, uh, maybe some people will like it, but it, it actually did really well. And, and I think David's been telling me a couple of times that he thinks about maybe re, re-release it, re-releasing it, and then worldwide because yes, there's still <laughs> a lot of people who would like to have it. You know, not only should he re-release it, uh, there should be a Stalkers in Tokyo too. And I don't care if it's Stalkers in Amsterdam or Stalkers in Rome, <laughs> <laughs> but but there should be a part two because there is just something so pure. And so magical about that album and that moment. I mean, it just really captures a moment. And um, you can't fake that in a studio. You can't, you know, it's, it, it's just, anyway, it's perfect. Um, Great. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. So, so let's hope that they, they, you do another one. Um, 1994. Uh, let's, let me read out these names. Tommy Aldridge, Rudy Sarzo, and Ron Young of Little Caesar. Uh, get together in a band with you. Call it Manic Eden comes out on, um, I forget what label it came out on, but a- another really powerful album, and it just didn't happen. It didn't work. Talk to me about that project, and was it meant just to be sort of a one-off? Um, and how did an album with those sort of four powerhouses not g- gain more attention? Well, yeah, there's a couple of very frustrating sides to that and and it it has to do 
for the biggest part with with me as a matter of fact um which is which really sucks but um what happened was we put a band together and and we all really believed in it um because we, we made this great album we we made it very quickly it was also in the, in, in the heydays of the grunge so we thought you know let's get down to uh, to our roots and our bare essentials and, and make like a authentic 70s style rock album um the way we've always liked it so that's what we did and uh, we finished it we were proud of it and still am actually and um then the plans were made to uh, to start touring but then then my um problem comes into the picture what happened was um david was at the time he was um uh having these big plans with jimmy page you know um they made his cover to page album um which was the reason why I thought, well, I'm not going to sit and wait, you know. So I suggested to Tommy and Rudy to, you know, to get together and form a band. And um, um, then we got Ron Young involved, and we made that particular album. Um, and we had the record companies we were involved with. We signed to several labels. We tried to find like um, the most motivated smaller label in in as many countries as we could. So we 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 would be sure that we have the right label in Germany, the right label in England, the right label in, in Holland, and, and so forth. And But what happened was um, uh, Jimmy Page decided, uh, just after a couple of Japanese shows with Coverdale Page, that he didn't want to go any further. So then suddenly, out of the blue, David calls me up, and, and totally unexpected, and he says, come on, let's um, you know pick up uh, where we left off with um, Whitesnake. And... Then I had to make one of the most difficult decisions in my whole career because um, initially I thought, well, no, no, you know, we're, we're, we're just uh, going, just getting started with Amanic Eden, I, and, and I didn't want to leave Tommy and Rudy dangling either, you know, and 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 Ron Young. And at the same time, um, I thought, well, if I don't, if I don't do this right now, um, then I would have uh, written. Two albums, <coughs> sorry, uh, the Slip of the Tongue album with David um, together, uh, which I couldn't play on because of a wrist injury, and uh, we we got Steve I and to play the parts, as most people know. Um, so I would have been with Whitesnake ever since late '86, and it was uh, so it was already eight years by then, and then I would have never played on a Whitesnake album. And uh, and I wasn't sure how my wrist situation was gonna uh, continue after that because at, at that moment in time I didn't have any problems. But I thought, well, maybe I'm gonna get him back again or whatever. And so and maybe this may very well be my last album. I, I wasn't sure about anything anymore. And I thought, well, just for my own um, emotions uh, and my friendship with David, I I, I, I thought, well. I'm going to have to make this Whitesnake album, um, and, and and at least I will have one one Whitesnake album in those eight years where I actually played on and, and, and wrote the music with David, um, instead of just writing the music with David and have somebody else play the part. So it was very, very difficult. I lost a lot of sleep for a couple of weeks over that, and I really felt shitty about, uh, you know, leaving Tommy and Rudy especially, uh, because we had a very serious bond after all those years together in Whitesnake, of course. And actually, we still do. But um, And for Ron, it was really shitty, too, because Ron 
is a great singer and he did a great job on his album and and he, he had his hopes and, and, and expectations too, of course, you know. So I felt really, really bad that I had to make, make this uh, Solomon's um, decision, you know. You have to choose between two babies. And that really sucked. So it's been it's been haunting me for years, you know, after that, because I felt so bad towards the other three guys in Manic Eden. At the same time, I thought I got to do it, you know, to, to, to leave behind like my... My own statement on um, on the White Snake album. So all the record companies involved with Manic Eden said, well, they based their promotional com- campaign on um, on us touring. Of course, that makes sense, you know. So since we couldn't tour, they kind of let it let it drop, basically. And um, and now it beca- yeah, it, it, over the years it became a cult album and. There's, there doesn't a week go by, or I, I get a like a message through Facebook or something. Um, where can I get the Manic Eden album? And um, what happened? Just like you were wondering about, you know. So, so yeah, that, that's like one of those shitty things in my career that that really went in the way that I didn't want it to go. Right, but but it, I can understand the choice, though. I mean, uh, you know, you 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 sort of quote-unquote, been in Whitesnake for all this time. You're not appearing on albums. You you end up essentially just being sort of a touring guitarist. That must have been frustrating for you to just be like, hey, I'm this guy in Whitesnake, but I'm not on, on any albums, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was. So, um, uh, and at the same time, I couldn't really, on the Restless Heart album, because it was a little bit toned down, you know, uh, I couldn't really uh, let loose playing-wise, um, because... We decided it needed to be pretty bluesy, uh, and also because we were hoping to get at least some radio here and there, despite the climate. And um, so David and the record company were a little afraid that if if we if the record would be too much rock, that the radio wouldn't play it anyway. You know, so that was another difficult decision to make because initially the record was a lot, a little bit rockier, and. Um, um, we had one or two more rock tracks on it, and one of the more relaxed uh, songs wasn't on it initially. And so those decisions were made in order to to see if we could maintain or, or basically like stay in the saddle in 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 those tumultuous, tempestuous um, runs days. Yeah. yeah. And and it's interesting to note that Restless Heart to this day has not been released in North America. It is a European and Japanese import only. Yeah, it, yeah sad, but true. Yeah, and bizarre, bizarre that... that yeah, it is, yeah, because I really think it's a great album. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh, it we'll really see. is, and and uh, especially if you... I collect the whole thing, so if you, if you go out and get sort of the, the single remixes of Too Many Tears, where there's, you know, uh, horns and trumpets thrown... <laughs> all kinds of great, <laughs> great stuff. Um, but let, let's get back to Vandenberg, the uh, the original band. Uh, yeah. You know, you do Teaser. Four years later, you, you come out with Vandenberg. You open for Kiss, for Ozzy Osbourne. There's all kinds of stuff going. Yeah. What happens by 1985, an alibi where you say, okay, um, this is not for me anymore. I'm going to go off and see what's out there, and then eventually end up with Whitesnake. Well, yeah, it, it, it happened in a little bit uh, uh, other sequence. Um, I was still, um, I, I had to uh, to fire the the original Vandenberg singer for various 
bad reasons, you know, uh, he was like a very confused person, which which is actually proven by the fact that he sued me a couple of years ago to to see if he could, you know, own my my own name. Right. Um, but so he, it was un, an unworkable situation with that guy, and so I had to fire him for my band, and then um, I tried out with another singer. But in the meantime, uh, David and I had stayed in touch ever since '82 when. Um, the first Vandenberg album came out, David already asked me if I was interested to work with him in Whitesnake. And of course I was, because I was a huge fan of his singing, you know, he's, and he's still up to this day one of my very f- favorite singers. So that was a really hard decision to say no. And the same thing happened in 83 or something during the Fly It In album. Um, and I couldn't do it because I really wanted to make my own mark with uh, my own band first before joining anybody else eventually um so in 86 um we got in touch again um david and um at the same time i got a call from john colonner at the time the um, a&r manager for geffen and and john uh told me on the phone he explained who he was i didn't know of him but uh, later on I, I discovered that he was behind aerosmith and behind bon jovi and behind um, basically everybody in in, in 80s rock um, so this, I got this John Clotter on the phone, and he, he, he says, well, I'm a now manager for Geffen Records. Um, I'm, are you willing to come over to the States to talk about a new record contract for Vandenberg? Because I got rid of my old Vandenberg contract. And I said, well, yeah, of course. So I flew over to the States, and um, the next day I'm in John's office, and he says, well, I haven't been quite honest because I have actually two offers for you. Um, two proposals, and one is to um, get rid of the rest of the Vandenberg band and form a new lineup for Vandenberg with really good musicians here in LA with a and with a great singer who knows who knows what he's singing, you know. And uh, the, I said, well, mm, I have to think about that, and uh, because I didn't want to leave the other guys dangling, you know. Um, so I asked for a couple of days of thinking about it, and uh, the second proposition was he says i would really like you to join whitesnake i said wow that's a surprise because david and i have been talking about it for a couple of times over the past couple of years you know and he said well you can think about it too um but in the meantime would you like to um to play on the record uh the 87 record i said yeah of course you know no 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 commitments uh no ties but just play on it and then david and colotner asked me to rearrange um uh, all the guitar parts in there and to, to, to play him and play a new solo on it, um, which I did. And I was in the studio when um, when I heard a couple of studios further where David was working with uh, Keith Olsen, the producer. Um, right. I heard a huge argument going on and I looked around the door and I saw um, John Sykes running out of the building. I said, oh, John Sykes? I thought he wasn't in the band. And he thought he was apparently or David fired him over the phone or whatever, something like happened. Uh, and I didn't realize that, you know, so it was a little uncomfortable, but I didn't see John. I never met him, uh, John uh, Sykes. But um, right. so I played on that album and then I went home to Holland and um, took a couple of days thinking about the whole thing. I thought, you know what, instead of putting a whole new Vandenberg lineup together in L.A., I'm never going to find a singer of uh, David's caliber. You know, I might as well join David because we had been talking about it for years already. So that's when I disbanded uh, Vandenberg. Um, and went to the States, and the rest is history. <laughs> the rest is history. Have you ever thought over the years 
notwithstanding lawsuits and the singer and stuff, of just putting back the the band and and just being Vandenberg again and, and going. Well, yeah, um, I I did think about it a couple of years ago um, about that possibility, or at least make an album. Uh, there, there was a huge offer for a couple of one-off reunion shows, um, which I really was, um, you know, thinking about. And but then suddenly I find this letter on my doorstep from a lawyer from. Uh, coming from the bass player and the, and the singer who used to be in Vandenberg, and they um, they said we we want to own your name basically, and they hired a uh, lawyer to to see if they could get it done. And I thought I'm never I, I'm never going to get together with those guys again. You know they're they're Judases, you know they're backstabbers from hell, and that's it. It turned into a whole lying circus of the the most surrealistic arguments where they came with you know like. That Vandenberg was my name, and 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 that um, the band was named after the Vandenberg Air Base in the uh, United States. I said, well, you know, yeah. if it would have been named after an air base, then we it would have been better to call it um, LAX or uh, New York Airport or whatever, because that's that's more well known to people than Vandenberg Air Base. Why would we do that? You know. So, but that was their argument apparently, and um, so it took about six lawsuits and stuff and, and, and aggravation and, and lost energy and lots of money and, and just, just to be able to yeah. and waste of time and energy plus they bombarded their own uh, opportunity to uh, because they've never done anything afterwards that did anything you know they're, they've just, just been waiting to um, for something to happen and it never happened with those guys so I bet uh, a couple of years ago after 30 years they were pissed off and Wanted to try to kidnap my name and, and see if they could maybe, you know, make a few bucks by abusing my name. And that, well, that didn't happen. So um, it would have been really, really strange. It would, it would, it would be like, you know, uh, Richie Zambora calling himself Bon Jovi or trying to, or Sammy Hagar trying to sue Eddie and Alex for the name. You know, it's it's just like the weirdest thing. Yeah, that that would be particularly bizarre if uh, Sammy yeah. Hager was touring as Van Halen without the Van Halen brothers. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Let, let's see if we can we we can talk about some uh, some some nicer stuff here. And I know we're running out of time because we we said half an hour. We're we're almost at an hour, so I'll I'll, I'll start wrapping. But um, some of the guitarists you had a chance to work with in the band include Vivian Campbell and include Steve Vai. You also were on his uh, Passion and Warfare album and then of course the Donington Live album came out years later 1990 um what was it like to be in a band with Steve and having that guitar playing off of each other with Steve because he's not just some guy i mean he's no Steve he's definitely not right? no. it was um rather intimidating in the in the beginning um the thing is that um Steve and i got on very well together actually we saw each other recently um in Holland when i Handed him um, like a uh, European guitar award that I got myself a couple of years earlier, and we really reconnected again and and, and stay in touch and stuff. Um, we had a great time because I never see um, uh, guitar players as a competition uh, like a lot of players do and a lot of musicians do. But for me, you know, you can't really compete in emotions. And good playing, whether it's guitar or nose flute, should be about emotions, I think. And the way I express my my emotions on my guitar is very different from how Steve does it. 
which is why I thought we were a great combination because Steve is so much more technical than me. You know, he can play stuff with his pinky that, that I definitely need all my four fingers for. Um, but um, I thought it complemented each other really well. Um, at the time, you know, it was kind of, it was a little bit of a rough time because I came out of that um, wrist injury thing and I wasn't sure whether I was ever going to be able to play properly again. And um, at the same time, you know, we, there was a lot of pressure on the tour because the 87 album did so ridiculously well. You know, it sold about 13 million copies or something and we were headlining the biggest stadiums across the world. So there was a lot of pressure for the Slip of the Tongue album, and which is why, you know, in a certain stage when my wrist kind of started um, um, having problems um, that um, I thought it was a logical step, you know, to right. to, to step back and, and see if I could get my wrist taken care of and, and that, that Steve could finish the album. And, of course, like everybody knows, he does, he does a great job on it, you know. And a lot of people, initially, including myself, to be honest, I thought, well, it's not the bluesy the blues rock style that Whitesnake is known for. So initially, it was very strange to hear on the songs that I wrote with David and on guitar parts that I wrote and riffs that I came up with and stuff, um, to hear somebody else interpret them. So initially, when I, the first couple of weeks, I really had to get used to the record because in my head, it was completely different or very different. So I talked about it uh, with Steve, of course, you know, especially um, the last time we saw each other, uh, couple of months ago and uh, almost yeah. a year ago um we talked about it he said yeah you know he had the same thing he said yeah for me it was kind of strange too to play on uh other uh, somebody else's ideas guitar wise and stuff you know so yeah but it it ended up being really interesting because both of us ended up doing something different than we normally would have done and that's always a learning thing you know it's always nice to suddenly get thrown into a different direction by certain circumstances and see what you can make out of it, you know? Yeah, and it's interesting also in, from the fans' perspective because when it came out, I was so much uh, in love with the 87 album, and then this came out, and I was like, huh? And all, yeah. these, all these years later, I go, oh, okay, I get it, you know, cheap and nasty. But the uh, Live at Donington 1990... Um, all, all of this spring, I've been playing it, and when it er- originally came out, I was like, oh, I don't want to hear this. And, yeah. And, and I don't mean that in, a, in an offensive way. But no, no, I know what you mean. Yeah, it was just very different, and, yeah. and it, was, it wasn't along the same lines as far as the whole uh, playing on it, the songs were, you know, but um, it just got a, a Steve Sly twist on it, which, which you know, put a lot of people on, on, on a different... And so I, you know, I bought the album and I've been listening to it, and it there really is, you know, when you start listening to what uh, Mickey Moody did and Bernie Marsden did on songs like "Fool for Your Loving," and, and then you get to this, the, it's 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 like two separate songs. It's yeah, it is. It's very different. It yeah. definitely is. Yeah. You know, the the the, the eighty seven album came out of uh, Whitesnake developing from Saints and Sinners through Slide It In, um, uh, ro- that was a rockier album, and then. A, uh, well, the 87 album was much more rockier, but it was the 80s, you know, so those were the days of the huge um, distorted guitars and everything and big stadium sound. And so, yeah, th- that, was, that was all kind of logical. And then, um, indeed, when Dave and I were writing the material for um, Slip of the Tongue, we, of course, had in mind like to, to follow the lines of the 87 album, 
uh, song-wise and uh, playing-wise, uh, I would have played it, you know, more a little bit more in, in, like in my Vandenberg days, but a little flashier because that's how you play in the 80s, you know. And um, yeah, it, it turned out a little different. But um, like you said, you know, I started pr- appreciating it more. Um, a lot later after yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. no I, i'm with you on that it 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 anyway um and, and, let, and let's finish with these two things uh vandenberg art you of course have been painting and and having expositions over in uh in europe um talk to me about that creative outlet and then i will also ask you uh just what it was like to have uh, vivian campbell in the banks of course he went on and did def leopard and has had a, a great success with them um which one would you like to answer first, Vivian or the art? Uh, well, the art is, is uh, time-wise would be more logical, maybe. Okay, um, let's go with the art the, then, because that's yeah, because a... we we talked we talked a little bit about it before. You know, the, one of the reasons that um, why I thought it was good to, to to take a couple of years off to you know to get back to my art because initially that was my living. You know, I, I did um, I studied at art university in Holland and taught art for a while, for a short while at school, and got bored really quickly. So I decided to continue painting and, you know, selling my paintings and do exhibitions and and, and this kind of stuff. So I, I really missed it during the Whitesnake touring because before that, in the, in the Vandenberg days, I was able to combine it because um, a big part of the year we played in Holland and Germany and Belgium, which it, so you were very often... During the week, you were often home, so I had time to paint. And um, with Whitesnake, we were constantly touring, so I didn't have the time anymore, and I started missing it. So I thought, well, let's pick it up. And, and by the time that David decided to to continue Whitesnake, because he was all done with it, you know, in 1990, he thought, I'm never going to do it again. Um, worn out, you know, and all stuff. And then two years later, he decided he wanted to do it. But at the time, when he called me up, I had all kinds of commitments for um uh, exhibitions that I couldn't cancel because people were investing money in, 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 in you know, big galleries and stuff. And um, those contracts usually uh, go easy 11, 12 months ahead because, you know, um, well, logistics exhibition, and, right. Yeah, yeah logistic. Uh, plus, every exhibition usually lasts for about two or three months, so they can only do a few a year. Um, so they have to play to plan ahead. And um so I had all these commitments, so I couldn't rejoin David. Otherwise, I probably would have. But um, um, yeah, I kept doing that for ten years, and um, I've been doing uh, quite some stuff over the last years. But right now, since Moon Kings, I'm focusing 100% on Moon Kings again. So um, in the next couple of months, now the album is done, I will have some time to do a little bit of painting. But um, my main focus is on Moon Kings because it's. It's such a great band to have, you know. I'm very fortunate to um, to still do what I'd like to do most. Yeah, no, it's it's a great band, and the and for those folks who haven't picked up the first Moon Kings from 2014, uh, well, basically, what are you waiting for? And uh, certainly, head over to Spotify or Amazon or whatever and pick it up. Um, and of course, check out Vandenberg-Art.com. Um, great place to see some of the tableaus you have done. Uh, Adrian, absolutely uh, uh, wonderful, and I'm glad we finally uh, got this done. I know we've been trying for a few months, and uh, here we are. Yeah. 
Say, Here we are. Say, Great. Say, say fini, as we say. Uh, thank yeah. you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And, of course, if uh, you need any help to uh, to get over to North America, just just let me know, and I will... Uh, Great. Thanks, Mitch. I, will I really I appreciate do. it, man. Absolutely. Great. And, Excellent. And I appreciate all the music you have uh, put forth and, of course, this chat. So, thank you. Thank you very much, Mitch. And uh, we'll shake hands sooner or later somewhere down that road. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Thanks. Take have care, man. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. Hey, Mitch here. And uh, are you in the market for a new car? And want to see what others have paid? Well, in order to feel confident and comfortable that you are getting a fair price, you need pricing context. Information that empowers you to feel confident. With True Car, you will see what other people in your local market paid for the car you want. From there, you can connect with a local True Car certified dealer and enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Using True Car, you can easily find the car you want. True Car will show you what other people in your area paid for the car you want. Now that you know what a fair price is, you can feel confident. Once you register, you'll see real pricing on actual inventory. This is a competitive pricing offered to you only by True Car certified dealers for an actual vehicle on their lot. It's pricing you'll see before going to a dealership so you can feel confident when you show up. With True Car, you can connect with a local certified dealer of your choosing so you can enjoy a quick, easy buying experience. True Car customers are more likely to enjoy a fast buying process when they connect with True Car certified dealers. True Car users save an average of $3,000 off MSRP. When you're ready to buy, visit True Car to enjoy a more confident buying experience. Some features not available in all states. Have you heard Spike's Car Radio? It's comedian, actor, writer Spike Ferriston sitting on the porch in Malibu talking with some cool people about cool cars and life in general. My first guest is Jerry Seinfeld. He's right here. He was all right. Don't try to hug him. Chris Hardwick. I could feel everything on the road. I mean, it was right. basically like, it was like unprotected sex for driving. <laughs> Jeremy Piven. I hold you know what? I think you and Jerry are spiritually tied to cars, <laughs> and I respect it and I love it, but I don't quite get it yet, but I want to get it. Download new episodes of Spike's Car Radio every Wednesday on the Podcast One app, or save time and subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or at PodcastOne.com. Now back to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. You back on uh, this part of the show. We are going to talk with former Iron Maiden vocalist Blaze Bailey. He has a new album, Endure and Survive Infinite Entanglement Part 2. He's also currently on the road, so we talk about all that stuff. But of course, since he was an Iron Maiden, we do talk Iron Maiden because why wouldn't we? So uh, without further ado, here is the one, the only, really nice guy and vocalist, Blaze Bailey. I am speaking with Blaze Bailey, uh, former singer for Iron Maiden, and of course, Wolfsbane. New North American tour happening right now here in August, going into September. Blaze, a great, great pleasure to uh, to speak with you. Uh, I'm so excited. It's lovely to talk to you, and I'm so excited about this tour. It's the first time I will have done a tour with my own band, uh, across the US so I'm so excited about it it's the same band that played on my 
two most recent albums and that have done the last four European tours with me. So I'm so excited to bring those guys with me. And um, the set list is what, we're, what we've been playing in Europe, a little bit of old and a lot of the songs from the new album. So it's something I've been looking forward to for a very long time, but I've always done odd bits and pieces, but I've never been able to get my own thing together. So it's absolutely fantastic that I can come with my own band and absolutely do what I always want to do. So uh, I'm very, very excited about coming over there and August the 9th is going to be the first date at Sellersville Theatre and I'm very excited about it. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited for you as well because I've seen you in the past and, uh, you know, because it's difficult sometimes with uh, promoters and flights and all that, you usually use a local band, uh, uh, either an Iron Maiden tribute band or something, and it sometimes is not, I mean, it's not the same thing as having the guys there with you where they know how you're going to perform, Then you know, you get into a feel in a pocket, so... These shows are going to be just spectacular, I feel. Well, we're, we're just looking forward to it. We've been on tour that long. Um, we've done so many European tours together, and it's the, the guys that played on the album. And my voice is sounding better. It feels stronger than it ever has done. I, I don't know why. Um, people say I'm sounding better now than I, than I have in my whole career of singing. So I'm very excited about that as well. So it's looking good, and we go, we come all the way through the U.S. And what we, what I said to my manager was, right, well, this cannot be the only time that we do this. I absolutely want to make sure that we can come back next year as well. So we're trying, we're working very hard that when we get there in August, we'll be starting to book the next U.S. tour. We hope. Oh, I'm looking forward to it. So so let's talk about the album Endure and Survive. It came out earlier this year. It is part two of a trilogy, of the Infinite uh, Entanglement trilogy. Um, talk to me about the concept of putting together sort of three albums that are thematically or linked. Um, what is the story? Well, and Go ahead. We started off... Um, I started to write a... Uh, a science fiction story and I felt that it was I had this idea for the science fiction story and I had to start writing it and then it came time to make an album and that's what I had so the guys that I write with I said you know I think this is a science fiction story and all of the lyrics that are used on the first album and on this album endure and survive are from this book that i'm writing and the book will come out after the third album and it's based around a, a central character and what happens to him and on the first album then it is infinite entanglement and he believes he signed up for a mission to visit a Kepler space telescope planet. And um, he actually is one of the crew, but he believes he's in a, a space suit. 
but his consciousness has been downloaded into a machine and he has to decide what is it to be human? Am I human because I think like a human and feel like a human, but my body is a machine? And the second album, Endure and Survive, which is the one we're touring with right now, what that one is, it's a journey of a thousand years to get to the nearest habitable planet. That's what the current observations from telescopes from the Hubble Space Telescope is. So it's the end of that journey of a thousand years and it's discovering why his consciousness has been downloaded into a machine, why he was selected for this mission when he is not the most qualified candidate. In fact, he's selected because he has a very dark past and he kills every member of the crew under hypnosis in a hypnotic trance-like state he kills every member of the crew because none of the crew of the ship are meant to get to that new world and so endure and survive is a very dark album and after he has killed every member of the crew then the ship's computer tries to destroy him so that when the Ship lands on the new world, there will only be genetically perfect human beings who've been stored on this ship. So it's a very dark thing about survival, people trying to destroy you, about discovering that the purpose you thought you had is meaningless, you have been lied to, and also to remember the things that kept you going in the past. How can you survive this? What are the positive things that you take from your past life and this telepathic connection that he has with one of the other characters is what eventually saves him and keeps him going and ensures that he can survive this journey of a thousand years. Of a thousand years. Now, uh, the third album that's going to come out in the trilogy, has that already been written? I mean, does the story already have an ending? And when will it come out? Well, when I started, then we were in rehearsals uh, for the first album, Infinite Entanglement, and I had 16 songs. And uh, my manager at the time said, well... How many songs do you think you're going to record? I said, well, you know, I have 16 really good songs. It's a theme out. I said, no, you only have time to record 10. That's it. You can't go and record 60. And I was like, oh. And then I looked at my song titles. I listened through to the demos that we'd done, and it became obvious. It was three albums because one of the songs the lyrics, the music, everything was obviously part three. It was where he is in part three of this story. So there had to be a part one and a part two. And it was, uh, uh, it took a, a lot of courage for me to say it will be three albums. Each one will come out on the 1st of March. We will tour each spring in Europe. And that's how we're going to do it. And to meet those deadlines that I set myself, I've had a lot of help doing it. 
But I think that was the best way, really. Yeah. And we've done that. I didn't want to do something where it was, well, it'll be finished when I feel it's finished. I don't like that. For me, I've got these incredible loyal fans in US and Canada and all over the world that have supported me. And I don't want to think, oh, well, when it's finished. I want No, I will work to make it ready and be the best it can possibly be for that date. So that's what I did. And um, I think it's the best thing, you know, working without a deadline is just, it's not for me. I, I prefer to work with a deadline, even though I still say to my manager, oh, perhaps we could have an extra few days for this. He goes, well, no, there is no more time available. And I'm like, but, you know, it's my band. And he said, I know. And you told me to tell you there's no more time available. It has to be finished. So uh, so that's how we do it. And uh, that's fine. And so far, it's, it's worked really well. And what I can't believe, uh, it's such a pleasant surprise. So many of my fans, particularly in US and Canada, have said they think Endure and Survive is the best album that I've ever done. Not just that it's better than part one, but they say that we think this is the best thing that you've ever done. Many, many of my fans. So it's a fantastic feeling. Yeah, it really is. And it, and it, and it does seem uh, very focused. And, and I don't mean that the other stuff was unfocused, but this particular album seems very, very focused. Um, the last time you were in Montreal, I had a chance to meet you at the uh, venue. I believe it was the Fufu Electrique, they call it. And you told me that your business here in terms of selling albums and tours was very family oriented that when you sell a cd it actually goes straight into paying your rent and paying your this um, talk to me about sort of this family organization and and the fact that it really matters to you that a fan buys a ticket that he comes meets you that that a, that a cd sale is not just some concept it really makes a difference in what you do well, for, I'm completely independent, and that's the difference, I think. I've, I've been a part of the big music machine uh, on and off for 30 years, and I, I've been in Wolf Spain, signed up to uh, an American label based in Los Angeles, and signed up to a UK independent. Then I've been with Iron Maiden, and I've been on EMI. When we were in Wolf Spain, it was also through Geffen and um, and Phonogram in the UK. And in Europe, when I had my solo deal, then I was with another label called SPV Steam Mama. And each time, though, I, I really believe that uh, I did learn so much from Rick Rubin and Brendan O'Brien when I was on the uh, Deaf American label, each time I, I really felt like it's just not about the fans, the the attitude towards the people that actually buy the music and feel that they're supporting the artist is horrible. People, they don't care. And in those bad old days before we had internet, then you could put enough magazine adverts out that a bad album would sell. And before anybody knew, they bought it 
and you'd sold enough to make your money back. Whereas now you put an album out and if it's bad, people will hear it and they just won't buy it. And so you better not put out a bad album now. And I think that affects big artists uh, a lot. So I'm independent and I'm not with any big label. I just have distribution. And when somebody buys the CD, that money goes to me and I pay my rent and I save up and make the next album. And the people that pre-order my CD, they don't know if it's going to be any good or not. And they just have confidence. And I'm very, very lucky that they support me. And they pre-order my CD and that makes the album, that funds the album. And I'm very, very lucky to have this incredible support. So I don't have to sell many CDs because... I just don't have a big machine. It's a very small team of people. We work very closely together. Most of the venues that I go to are independently run, promoted by the owners or a local promoter. And that's how it works. And we like to go back to the same venues each time. If they treat the fans well, if they care about the sound, we return. We don't care about the prestige of the city or where it is. If fans are there and they're treated well and the sound is good, then we return. We don't care about the size of the venue or anything. And I feel as an artist, then I'm in a place where I want to be because many of the venues I play, I can meet my fans afterwards. And every Blaze Bailey concert, there is a free meet and greet after the show because it's not really a meet and greet it's just thank you it's just a signing and it's immediately after the show so that everybody can get a photo and get something signed if they want it's a thank you from me for their incredible support so um that's the way that i like to do it yeah and that's what i noticed uh in montreal and and I do think that, that the approach that you have now does create an urgency because you can't be lazy or phone it in and say, ah, I'll just put on some filler on this album. Um, it does focus you in terms of the content you're delivering, correct? Well, I think um, I get to listen to my fans. Yeah. You know, and, I, and I find out the things that they like about me, and I'm often very surprised. They're like, oh, I really like you this part i like this song and when you do this in this song and i'm like wow that was such a huge accident and it was you know but that's something that a lot of people like so i take notice of that and then i when i'm writing i think well there's this particular texture that many of my fans like so i'm going to try and find places to use that texture of my voice in the song so i i think i'm very lucky really to to be able to do that, to speak to the people who support me directly and have their input. Yeah, I agree. Now, um, I do want to talk a little bit about Iron Maiden. Um, Man on the Edge is one of my all-time favorite Iron Maiden songs. I think it is just absolutely spectacular. I just love it. But when you got the gig with the band, did you go in sort of cocksure and and, and cocky like, I'm going to be the next Iron Maiden singer and the hell with whoever came before me? Or did you go into it with an incredible stress going, 
oh, fuck, now I got to be Bruce. You know, I got to be as good or better than Bruce. Talk to me well, about I was a fan of the band before. Right. So the, the important thing for me was the singing. I got to sing these incredible songs that I loved. And I had the opportunity to work with guys that I'd listened to and I had immense amount of respect for. So the real feeling was one of freedom because you could write anything you wanted. And Steve Harris said to me, there's nothing written for the X Factor and it doesn't matter who writes it, it just has to be great. And so many of my song ideas were accepted and used on X Factor album. So that felt good. But the main reason and the best part of I Maiden is the music. So it's not important for me to be famous, but it is important that I get to sing, write and perform and to do what I want as an artist. And Maiden had fought many, many battles, artistic battles over the years. And it meant that they could do exactly what they want with no objection or input from the record company. And I enjoyed that freedom. So yeah. the most important thing was the singing. Yeah, it was scary because there was so much to learn, you know, so many songs and you've got to try to nail it. You know, every gig is a championship game. So uh, it really so is. That's how it was. I enjoyed it, man. The most important thing was the music. I just loved the music. And I love to sing that music. Back in 95 and then later on in 98 when the two albums came out, um, th they seem to have been somewhat dismissed by the press and, and some fans just because you weren't Bruce Dickinson. Do you, do you think that was a fair uh, reaction from the fans? And were you sort of in a no-win situation just because you weren't that guy? I actually, I, I was in a win-win situation, okay. really, because... I got the gig, which I never thought I would get because my voice was so different to Dickinson. And I had support of many, many fans. There were a lot of fans who I'm the first Iron Maiden singer that they heard. I'm the first Iron Maiden singer that they saw live. So the, I, I have a lot of uh, people that really support me and liked me. There are uh, a huge number of people who absolutely hate and detest me and wish I'd never been anywhere near Iron Maiden. And they're entitled to their opinion. And I'm, they're obviously very happy that Bruce is back. There's still an even, there's a small element of people that want Paul Diano to be the singer of Iron Maiden again and don't want Bruce at all or me. So I think it's just. Um, it's an it's that's uh, that's certainly interesting and and, yeah, and of course and I used to get it all the times oh they should bring back Paul he was the best you're like what man it's years ago so uh, it's just fun I, I you know Bruce is a fantastic guy and he's gave me absolutely. so much support over the years in and out of the band so um, and I met Bruce Dickinson before I met anybody else of mine mate and he, and he he's always treated me absolutely wonderfully. And uh, he's always been an absolute gold for for me. So uh, I, I think he's a great singer. I always have, and I think he's he does a wonderful job. And it's a very very tough job to to front one of the greatest metal bands of all time. 
and make that work. It's a very, very tough job. Yeah, it really so, is. But I, I think he does a great job. You know, it's big. It's a big job, and there's not – you can't do the things that I do. You can't meet the fans after the gig You, uh, the way that I do. You, you can't just play small venues. You can't go back to the same places and have those kind of relationships where, oh, we're back again after last year, and this is what we're doing. So it's a lot of pressure up there. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, you, of course, did a tour with Paul Diano back in uh, 2012. Hope, hopefully, at some point, uh, another uh, edition of that will, will come, will happen. Um, before we finish here, because I know we're, we're running out of time, uh, Steve Harris, just a musical mastermind, in my opinion, a complete genius. What was it like working with him and being sort of oh, on the inside? Yeah. He's a musical genius. For me, and the things that I learned, he mentored me really in the songwriting. I had some ideas, and some ideas he really helped me with. Other ones, he said, "Yeah, that's really good." But he really mentored me in my singing. He helped me find parts of my voice I never even knew existed, and and that is my sound now. It's what I learned in Iron Maiden that gives me the sound of my voice that I have now. So. I think it's just incredible. And um, one of my favourite songs that I never got to sing was Blood Brothers. And uh, I've done an acoustic version of that with a classical guitarist called Thomas Feist. And, and uh, it came out really, really well. But I think that's one of the greatest songs that Steve Harris has ever written. And uh, it's something like, if you don't know Blood Brothers from I Made, I recommend that you go and listen to that. Yeah, absolutely. Now, now you mentioned, Thomas, you on the... Um soundtracks of my life uh compilation which uh, i actually picked up at the montreal show great compilation you had done clansman acoustic with him uh is, is there a plan to release anything else uh, acoustic with him or, may, or maybe yes, make yes, okay. yeah yeah we're working on uh, on stuff we have a couple of ideas there's a few things left over from last time and next year we'll be bringing out another uh, acoustic classical metal album um, with violin and classical guitar and my voice and we're very very excited about it we'll have a bit more time next year because the third part of the trilogy will be out and uh, the, there'll be a, a little bit of a break in writing so we're going to do an acoustic oh that's that's great and and if I can put in a request, please, uh, Man on the Edge Acoustic would, would really make my day. I think there is a version of it somewhere. Oh, I don't know where. If you look on YouTube, there's bound to be one because we've done it so many times. Good. I'll have to find that. Um, and then I'll, we'll finish with this. Uh, Wolfbane Saved the World came out in 2012. Uh, where are we with Wolfsbane? Are we are we doing yeah, anything? Another reunion this year okay. in December. Starts December 14th. It's just a few dates in the U.K., and on the days off between the shows, we'll be working on new material. We already have a few ideas left over from the last album. So it's a, a reunion with the full first album lineup again. And we'll be writing and hopefully next year around October time, something like that, we'll bring out another new, incredibly powerful Wolf Spain album. And uh, hopefully it will save the world. Let's hope so. Um, uh, just a great pleasure because you're, you're, you're just so kind and so nice, and I wish you all the best. And uh, very much looking forward to either seeing you in uh, Montreal or Ottawa at the Brass Monkey uh, in August. Uh, Blaze, always a pleasure. 
Okay, thank you. A huge thank you to all of my Canadian fans for the incredible support they've given me over the last couple of tours. And I just can't wait to see you there in August. Cheers, thank you. Cheers, thank you. Bye-bye now. Bye. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFond. Rock Talk. Big thank you to Blaze Bailey and, of course, Adrian Vandenberg before that for their two great conversations so far today. And uh, it is fitting to end the episode with a third great conversation. A little trip down memory lane as we speak with Greg Kinn. He's got a new album called Rekindled. It is absolutely fantastic. I do uh, encourage you to check that out. Uh, We talk about the new album, working with a young Joe Satriani, and a lot more. So without further ado, here is the one, the only, Greg Kinn. We are speaking with musician Greg Kinn. The new album is Rekindled. Greg, pleasure to have you here today. Oh, hey, Mitch. It's uh, it's a pleasure to be here. How are you doing today? Good. Doing well. Um, so th- this is one of those special interviews for me because I've always followed your career, you know, back in the early 80s with, with Jeopardy and, and um, all those wonderful songs. Uh, but let's talk about the new album first, Rekindled. 21 years since the last studio album. What rekindled your interest in making a new album? Well, the number one reason that I was kind of missing in action there for 18 years was I was on the radio. I was on K-Fox Radio in San Francisco, and I did the morning show on uh, K-Fox for uh, about 18 years. And as you know, when you're doing the morning show, you get up at 4 o'clock in the morning. You don't really have much of a life. Uh, When the weekend rolls around, you just want to sleep. So that's what I did over the last 18 years. And then uh, they finally let me go at the station and uh, I was back in, you know, thrust into my, my early life. And the first thing I wanted to do was let's get us, let's get an album together. And uh, we started working at, uh, there's a studio home down here that's, uh, Owned by uh, my bass player, uh, Robert Barry. It's called Sound Tech Studios in Campbell, California. And that's where we did the album. And really, it was uh, it was a lot of fun. It was a labor of love. And uh, I, 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 I didn't not enjoy about every minute of that album. It was just great. Really was. Now, let me talk to you about the, the K-Fox days. You know, here you are in the 80s. Jeopardy, the breakup song, opening for Journey, the Rolling Stones. Oh, yeah. What was the decision to join uh, the radio station in the morning show? Was it because, you know, you had a family and you just want to stay closer to home? Yeah, yeah it, was, uh, it was pretty much like that. I was trying to stay host a little closer to home. Um, up to that point, you know, my entire adult life I'd spent on the road pretty much. Uh, you know, we had to, we had to travel to make money to make ends meet so it was really a non-stop tour and uh it was and then when you take out when people have a short memory i think uh when when i kind of dropped out of that world uh people forgot who i was like you know they remembered the song jeopardy they remembered the song breakup song and stuff like that but you know they didn't realize it was Greg Kinn that was doing it. So 
now people are rediscovering the Greg Kinn band, and it's been really pretty. It's pretty cool because now my son Rye is the lead guitar player. So now we're two generations deep. Rye is an outstanding guitar player. He's a former student of Joe Satriani when Joe was was in my band. Right back in '86. And uh, Rye, he's just a great. Uh, he, he's uh, went to Boston. Uh, Berkeley School of Music in Boston and Cal Arts. He graduated as a jazz guitar major. So the kid can play anything. And then we got Robert Barry on the bass and the keyboards and doing the production. And we got uh, Dave Lauser on drums now. Dave is comes to us from Sammy Hagar's band. In fact, I ran into Sammy about a year ago and he says, here, take because he, he's got so many projects. I mean, he's got Chicken Foot and probably three or four other projects. And he well, he's says, also hey, got you use Dave. He's also Try got the circle, Dave. Yeah. Uh, well, he said you 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 use Dave. He's not going to be busy for the next year and a half. So I took Dave, and it's like having uh, it's like having Keith Moon in the band. And he's just he's real busy. He's real exciting. It's a really it's a he's a great drummer. Let me talk about the importance of family, because you mentioned, of course, your son is playing with you now. Uh, back in the yep. day, when you were on American Bandstand, Dick Clark uh, yeah. was interviewing you, and he said, Hey, you know what? I got this letter, and it was from your dad. And he was saying, Hey, treat my son right, and so on and so forth. Uh, how important is sort of the family unit to you? Enough where you got off the road to do the radio stuff. Um, just talk, sort of talk to me about family and its importance. Yeah, you know, family is really important, and uh, I think uh, it's more important as you go along in life. Now, at the at that point in time, after K Fox, I was itching to go back on the road. It'd been, you know, what had been eighteen years, and uh, I missed it. Frankly, it was a lot of fun. You know, we had the kind of situation where you know you really dreams uh, are you dream about this. Uh, you got a great studio, great facility, unlimited time, good producer, and you just hang out all day in the studio and we just hang out, we hang out, hang out and just white work, uh, work on songs. It was, it was pretty amazing. But you know, my dad, when the first time we were on, it, um, American Bandstand, uh, America, yeah, I almost said Ed Sullivan there. No, that would have been wrong. <laughs> Well, that would have been a great. Uh, was, that would have been great too. American <laughs> and he got you know he he was uh, Dick was really rather nostalgic, and he says you know we have had thousands of bands on the program, thousands over you know twenty plus years, and he says of the thousands of bands that have been on this show, I've only gotten one thank you card from a guy's father, and that was Greg Ken's father. So he he had that framed, and it was in his office for years. My my uh, my dad's letter. So I'm I'm kind of proud of that. I think it's a great moment. Was he one of those fathers that when you said I'm going to be a rock star, I'm going to go into music, that that just gave you a hard time and said, "Oh, what do you go get a real job?" Or was he supportive yeah. the entire way? Oh no, you know they really wanted me to have a real job. They really wanted me to not be a musician. I think they viewed that as kind of like a temporary gig, you know. Uh, but you know, I, I, I once I once I showed that this was my career choice, uh, 
you know, once I really started getting serious, uh, they were very, very supportive. And they used to come and see me whenever we'd play in that, you know, in the Baltimore area where I was born and raised. And, uh, you know, my mom and dad were, were proud of what I had accomplished. And, you know, my mother, by the way, uh, really loved the album titles. She viewed it as a as an early form of branding. You know what I mean? Everybody knew about her son's last name and her last name from uh, from all those album covers. Yeah, those are all the great titles. I, I did want to touch upon that. Um, let me re- quickly move over to Weird Al Yankovic. He, of course, covers Jeopardy, and he calls it I Lost on Jeopardy. Um, what is the effect of a parody song on the career? D- does it hurt you where people are starting to think, oh, this is not serious? Does it help and say, hey, man, i got to go check out the original? Um, what was that impact? Because when I think of Jeopardy, I sometimes think of your lyrics, but I also have to yep. admit, I sometimes think of Weird Al. I, I, like, I start, hey, hey, listen, man. You know? <laughs> That's me, too. You know, I've been on stage a couple of times and started singing I Lost on Jeopardy. The nice thing about Weird Al, first of all, Weird Al is a great guy. And uh, he called me up uh, out of the clear blue sky one day, and he asked for permission to do a parody. Now, before they can get uh, before they can get permission, they've got to, uh, uh, you know, they got to, they've got to get your blessing, right. you know, to do it on the album. And I was really flattered when he called me up because I was like, you know, uh, if you're well enough to be parodied, then you're, you're well enough to be parodied. So uh, it was pretty, it was pretty intense. And the nice thing was, I had a, see, I think our our version came out in the spring, and we were all, all the t- touring during the summer months. And then he came out in the fall, and his his version of Jeopardy was a big hit too. And then that took us through the winter months. So I had double mailbox money with that one and it was really kind of cool yeah i can imagine and and it's such a great version um i haven't actually seen the video for for the weird al one in in about 30 years but you were in it at the end oh it's a classic oh yeah yeah and you know the nice thing was like when i could i wanted to to do a, a a cameo appearance on the on the video and uh i got to meet Don Pardo, which was a big thrill. <laughs> That's great from, from from the actual show. Um, yeah, you, you, yeah. You mentioned um, Joe Satriani, so let's look back to 1986, "Love and Rock and Roll," the album that he plays on. Uh huh. Uh, talk to me about that album, and 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 talk to me about Joe, because you know we all know that he's had this incredible solo career, surfing with the aliens or on the aliens, uh, doing the stuff with Chicken Foot. Um, what was it like getting him in as sort of a fresh, young, hotshot guitarist and having him in your band? <laughs> well, originally, see, we were a Berkeley band, uh, the Greg Kinn band. You know, there was there were a handful of Berkeley bands. Berkeley is right across the San Francisco Bay from San Francisco, so you know we're just a uh, you know a, a ride away across the bridge. And uh, there was a lot of there was a lot of Berkeley bands back in those days, bands like Earthquake and stuff like that. And uh, I had uh, when we started Berserkly Records, 
nobody really wanted us. So we wound up kind of pooling our money and we put it all together. We made the Chartbusters album and uh, that proved to be a big hit. And we just went on from that to go uh, to, to do more stuff. But, you know, what was what was your original question? Well, just uh, simply, what was it like getting Joe Satriani in the band? Because, you know, we know of him now, 2017. Yeah, he's really good. Right. You know, the thing was, when I when he was in my band, I kept saying, and I guess it's probably the wrong thing to do, but I kept saying, Joe, you're too good for this band. We're like a three-chord band. You're like a 3,000-chord guy. I said, you know, eventually you're going to have to leave the band. Now, I had asked him years ago before before any of this right when we were starting out he was in a band called the squares the squares were a big berkeley band and they were unsigned and uh, i asked him if he would join the greg kin band he goes no my loyalty is in the squares i've been in the band since we started it and just want to see it through so he stayed in the band for like another five years i asked him again he said, no, I can't go. I, I still, I love these guys. And then the third time, the third time was a charm. I asked him uh, towards the end of the, of the GKB career. And he said, yes, I will now join your band and travel with you. So uh, Joe, he gets in the band and, you know, immediately he starts showing how professional he is. You know, like right. he goes to a sound check. My guys would go to a sound check you know, do maybe a 15 minute sound check and then head out to go, go, you know, check into the hotel and go get some, some dinner and yada, yada, yada. Right. Joe would show up at the, at the venue. He would do his sound check with the band and then the band would leave and go to the hotel and Joe would stay behind at the venue and he would sound check his guitar for like another two hours. It was unbelievable that he, we would go back to say, Joe, you're still here. He says, yeah, yeah. I got, got everything all dialed in, but he was an amazing guy and he really paid attention to, to details. Yeah. He's Joe, Joe's fantastic. Um, Greg Kin, the author, uh, you've written a bunch of books, uh, yep. especially carved in rock, which, which is a, a great, uh, I guess what you want a compilation of different stories, I guess, for the lack of a yes, better word. Thank you. Um, uh, talk to me, though, about the creative process in terms of writing a song versus writing an author. Is it, is it, is it just two completely different creative processes for you, or is it just part of one larger whole of here's stuff in my head and I just got to get it out in one shape or another? Yeah. I think you hit the head. I think you hit the nail on the head there because. Really, I was always uh, full of ideas, you know, going back to when I was in junior high school. Uh, I remember, you know, writing a notebook full of, uh, you know, weird ideas. And I had always been a writer, you know, um, just, you know, just kind of a, as a hobby, you know. And I, I when I was on the road in the early days with the Greg Kim band, one of the things that I would do, because I did a lot of reading, too, uh, was I, I, I brought my notes, my notebook, my notebooks with me on the road. And I would write these, you know, novels or I don't know what you would call them. They weren't really novels, but I, I would write and write and go back to my room and write. And that was a pretty good thing to do. It kept me out of trouble. 
And uh, I really, as as the years went by, um, I did, I, I got, I learned the craft of writing. Really, that's the that's the key because it is a craft. Oh, absolutely. And uh, I just started working on it, and I got a little bit better every year. And by about 1996, I published my first novel horror show which was um nominated for the bram stoker award for best first novel so that was a thrill yeah so um talk to me also though about this that sort of the fascination with horror fiction because i look at the music and and maybe i'm wrong but i see greg ken as being very upbeat very positive in terms yep. of, of messaging and musical motif and all that stuff and here is a completely a different side, a dichotomy. You've got horror and murder. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like, you know, you'd expect me to be in, you know, Black Sabbath. Right. Instead of the Great Kim Right. Yeah. You know, I, I, it was really nice because I never, when I started writing, there were no, it was no pressure. There was no deadline. There was no get this thing done. Now, when I, uh, finally got an, a literary agent that was, like around 1997-ish, um, she was just really uh, a um, really supportive, and I think it was more hand-holding than anything else, you know, walking your manuscript through. I'd never been edited before, so it was, that, was, that was a real eye-opener. But you know what I learned? And I learned how to edit, and I learned how to pare things down and be economical and you know, say things with fewer words and that, that all was fun. Um, but you know, working, working on the novels, it, it did, it gave me a kind of a peacefulness that, uh, you know, I, 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 I used to love what I do. I still, to this day, I love working on songs. I love it when I have a new idea. In fact, I can't conceive of what it would like to be, have to, to not have, original ideas all the time you know like my brain is full of ideas i got the next two or three novels plotted out in there i got the next uh cd work uh, working on as a matter of fact we've already recorded two songs for the next cd probably be coming out about a year from now so that's kind of ex exciting and you know like i said before doing the doing the radio allowed me the kind of uh room to get to get into novel writing and uh if i hadn't done that i probably wouldn't have had you know the time to do it because you know obviously it takes like an, at least an, a year to write a, a decent book and uh you know you, you as you got through the year you it got better and better and you got uh and then with the, when I finally got the nomination for the Stoker Award, I was blown out. I, I thought to myself, man, there must be guys, you know, better than me trying this. Yep. But that's been the, uh, it's been the story of my life. You know, when my mom, uh, I was once in a, my mother put me in a contest. I mean, I was like 13, maybe 15 years old. And I had a guitar and I already knew three chords on it. And uh, my uh, I used to have one of these little wall and sack tape recorders, these little reel to reel jobs. And I go into my mother's, uh, bathroom in the, in the shower stall, close it 
and then record the demos because it was really great acoustics in there. And unbeknownst to me, my mom sent one of those demos into the top 40 station that was having a big talent contest. And I won, I won the contest. It was unbelievable. And I won three things that would affect my life. One was a, a Vox electric guitar, which I still own, which I still own. And uh, another one was an electric typewriter. Remember them before, way before oh, computers? They had electric typewriters, man. Uh-huh. And then uh, a stack of records. So I would I would grow up to speak on the radio and play the records on the radio and and write the uh, write the books on the electric typewriter and then uh, the electric guitar. Well, that was, you know, that was kismet. So I, I had already won the tools of my trade, so to speak. Yeah, the, the good old days. Um, where do I want to go here? Conspiracy, the the album, uh-huh. 1983. Well, in fact, do you consider it the album in your in your career? I mean, it, it's sort of the one that really, to me at least, put you on the map. You had Jeopardy, you had the yeah. single, you had... Is that the one? Yeah, I think uh, overall that a conspiracy is the one because it did in, it did contain Jeopardy. Uh, but then again, rock and roll was big too, and that was with the breakup song. Um, of the two songs, you know, I still perform both of those songs in concert. And uh, I'll tell you the truth. Jeopardy has gotten more and more difficult to sing as the years have gone by because it's really high. And I, <laughs> you know, my, my voice has kind of dropped a little bit over the years. And, uh, uh, it, 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 right now when I go to do, we usually end, we usually do the breakup song somewhere in the middle of the set because it's really well known and everybody goes, yay. But uh, the breakup song we always do is the closer because it's such a rave-up song, and it has a great uh, reaction with the crowd. So, uh, you know, we've always done that as a closer in the set, and it really works well. It really does. Um, Talk to me about the physicality, because, you know, when you look at our sports heroes, you know, Roger Staubach and Terry Bradshaw, nobody would ever think, well, they should be playing in the NFL at 65 or at 70 or what. And yet rock stars, yeah. they go on and go on and go on and go on. And, uh, you know, thank God for that. But is there some adjustments that need to be made? I mean, is, is there a point where you think, okay, I, I'm going to have to step off the stage? Or just talk to me about that physicality and what it's like well, as you get older. It's never happened to me. I never felt like I should get off the stage or, you know, abandoning uh, my career path at this point. I, I You know, I've been really busy uh just the last couple of months since since we started working on the album putting the album out but you know i look at it as a labor of love you know really it it was so much fun i felt it liberating to go back into the studio because you know what you do if you're a songwriter and you keep a notebook of song ideas i had about three or four notebooks chock full of song ideas so when i started writing those songs uh, it was, I just had so many ideas. Uh, I had extras and the nice thing about it was as we recorded the album, we kept thinking, Oh, this is a single. Oh no, that's the single. Oh, wait a minute. No, this song, this is the single because we loved all the songs. And as we wrote them, 
you know, I'd get to get to the point where they'd be done and I go, wow, man, that's really good. I think that's our, that's our, that's our single guys. And then we would do the next album. And I mean, the next song, it was, oh, maybe that's our single. So all through the whole thing, I just felt like, uh, you know, it was a special thing and, and, uh, being allowed to go back in the studio after all these years was really a pleasure. And, you know, I've been a, a musician now for God since I since I was since I saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan basically, and I remember watching that with my parents. There's a parents again. Uh, watching that with uh, with my parents in the sun on Sunday night on the Ed Sullivan show on our big old black and white TV screen. Of course, back in those days you know tvs were furniture it was huge and we would you know everybody would see the beatles and i remember pointing to the beatles and telling my dad that's what i'm going to do dad that's what i'm going to do and i'm sure he was going oh god please not not that yeah he's going no you're not no you're not no you're not Um, yeah uh and 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 speaking of family um your band over the years, I, I would think at some point you, you sort of see them as family. Uh, Steve yeah. Wright passed away earlier this year. Um, just a few words on Steve, because, you know, his, his bass playing, to me, was sort of essential to the early sound. Um, yeah. Just just a, a couple of words on, on Steve. Yeah, I you know, I loved Steve like a brother. He was my partner in crime for all those years. He co-wrote most of the, the hits with me. Uh, he was in the band from the very, the very first day. As a matter of fact, I remember my my first job I w- when I first came to Berkeley. I was busking. You know what busking is? That's yes. when you sing on the side of the street, the street. for for exactly. Yep. We used to have a guitar. Me and Robbie Dunbar from Earthquake would get there and we would sing in the street. And I, like, I didn't have any job. I didn't have any income. And we used to make like 40 bucks, 50 bucks a day. And, uh, you know, I was big money in, in, in those days. But I remember one day, uh, Malcolm, a guy named Malcolm I knew, walked, on, walked by and he said, hey, it's really, it's a drag. You guys don't have a band because I really need a band to be the house band in my bar. He had a place called the Long Branch Saloon. And any money was... And unfortunately, at this time, the phone connection just simply dropped out. But I got Greg back on the phone to finish this story, finish the interview. So uh, here is, once again, Greg Kinn. Let's just continue. You were talking about busking on the sides of the street, and Eddie Money was there, and what happened next? Yeah, Eddie Money was the house band at the Long Branch Saloon, and uh, he was moving up and out, and... So the guy, Malcolm came, comes up to me on the street. And he says, it's really a, it's a shame you don't have a band because I need a band for my bar to be the house band starting this weekend. And I lied and I said, oh, I got a band. Oh, we're really good. You got to check us out. I didn't have a band. All I had was a bass player, Steve Wright. And, uh, you know, Steve and I put together a band in one week. He's, he is, his uh, brother-in-law was the drummer, Larry Lynch. So my brother-in-law is a pretty decent drummer. Let's get him. 
We got him, and then uh, he goes, oh, I know a guy in high school who was a great guitar player. I'll get him. And he got Dave Carpenter. And, you know, here's a band that was thrown together, really, in one week, and that band stayed together for 18 years and made uh, 20 albums. Is that amazing? That is more than – that is spectacular, actually. Um, that is that is fantastic. Uh and I, I guess we'll just finish on this. Uh, you mentioned before that you are uh, playing with your son now, which, which I, of course, I, I saw and I read. Um, just talk to me about that, because here, you know, I, I was just looking back at some pictures of my daughter when she was a year old this morning, and, you know, she's 14 now. What's yeah. it like to sort of look back and, you know, you, 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 you remember when he was a baby and you were changing diapers, and, and now he's a confrere. He's, he's in the band with you. Just, just talk yeah, about that it's, thrill. It's pretty... It's pretty amazing, and I get a kick every time I look next to me on the stage and I see my son up there playing. Uh, it re- I just get a kick out of it. But, you know, I started Rye when he was very young. I mean, God, he was like maybe eight or nine when he started playing guitar, and uh, he had several guitar players, be- be- guitar teachers before he got uh, Joe Satriani. But, you know, you don't get to Berkeley School of Music by not reading music. I mean, you know, you got to be a complete musician to do that. And, you know, I was, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm always flattered and I love it when people go, wow, your son can really shred. Um, he can play all different styles and he's a really good musician, but the fact that it's my son, you know, my flesh and blood, I think that's really special because most bands can't say that. And yeah, here's another kick too, by, by the way, Mitch, when I, I have two grandchildren, they're eight and five right now. You know what those ages are like, right? Eight oh, and five. Oh, oh yes. Oh, yes. My, my kids are, are 11 just, and 14. Just, so yesterday I just gave their first guitar lesson and they loved it. So I'm telling the kids maybe 10 years from now, you'll be up on stage and there'll be three generations of kins up there. That'd really be a trip. That would be, uh, that would be great. And, and of course they can sort of do like foreigner and, and you don't have to be there anymore and they can just take over. Exactly. And do <laughs> exactly. I'll just be musical advisor. Right, musical director, right I think is I what they call it. It's, it's uh it's a privilege to have this job. You know, it's, it's a wonderful, uh, it's a wonderful career to be a musician, also to be a writer and a, and a DJ, you know, it's, it, it's, I really consider my life blessed that I could do all these things. And, uh, what amazes me the most, Mitch, is I never run out of ideas, you know, like we were in the studio yesterday. And uh, we're just coming up with ideas. I don't know where they came from, but we came, we got two songs towards the next album. And, you know, you know, nowadays it's a, it's a completely digital world where we started off. There were no websites. There were no cell phones. There was no anything. You just went out, you played your butt off. And, uh, you know, ever since then, you know, we've got this whole social media thing going. Apparently, they tell me I got 76,000 people on the uh, on the Facebook. I don't even know 76,000 people. But it really, you know, you, you look back and I think in my mom, because she's gone now. 
but how how she would have been so proud and uh you know so favored to have a, a son that got actually got through this thing and 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 made it made it to the end and had hit records and everything uh it's really just been a privilege and you know i i've been yeah, I've been blessed this whole time, and I, I look at back of them in my career. I mean, you know, there were the Berserkly years, there were the EMI years, there was the MTV years, the, all these different eras that we went through. Uh, all I can tell you is now in this social media world, you can now go to gregkin.com, which is a uh, site that I maintain and we I got a guy that does it for me uh Michael Brand make sure everything is good and you know what I still blog two or three times a week and just write things that I want to get the, the the fans to read because I feel that it's important that you do socialize with them and that it's a two-way street you know uh just being a musician so Really, nowadays it's it's all about gregkin.com. You can go there and get, you know, those my, I'm, my I'm on there right now, now, by they, the way. You can get the uh, the yeah. Whenever can I get the the books and the the CDs and all that stuff? Well, it's all there at kfox at, at gregkin.com. Right, and of course, uh, check out your personal YouTube channel, which I thought was great. So there was a lot of great content on there. There's you talking about yeah. books and the this and the videos. Yeah, that was another thing. We had so many. I went and looked at how many you know, over the years we made a a ton of of uh, of these videos, and we started looking at them. My God, we, it was like a movie. There were like you know dozens of them, and the ones that we did three on the new album. Um, Pink Flamingos, Cassandra, and The Life I Got, and they all came out great. So I'm really happy with that. I like the uh, the Pink Flamingos video. I was watching that earlier today. Uh, Greg, absolute pleasure. I mean, this is this has been fantastic. And uh, hey, you know, my pleasure uh, entirely, Mitch. And uh, I really enjoyed talking to you today. Maybe we should do this again sometime. Absolutely, we should. And uh, hopefully we will do it without the same uh, telephony uh, problems. Yeah. We, hey, listen, man. Yeah. I figure about a year from now we'll be doing this for the next album, and uh, we'll be reminding you, hey, you remember the time uh, everything <laughs> dropped out? Yeah, but, <laughs> you know, that that's the one thing that people don't realize, is that sometimes before the show gets to air, you've got to go through the trenches to, to get to the other side. But there you are. We, we yeah. made it. Yeah. We made it, and it's been an absolute pleasure. And, of course, uh, Greg Kin Rekindled uh, is out Yeah, now. Rekindled. Buy two of them. I need one for me and one for my exes. Yeah, buy, buy the uh, one autograph. Well, uh, yeah, the autographed uh, version for me and the uh, non-autographed version yeah, for that, the ex. That's it. <laughs> Beautiful. And of All course, right. buy the books. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Thanks, Mitch. I really appreciate it, man. I'll talk to you soon. Yeah, absolutely. Now, bye bye. Now, cheers. Bye bye. <laughs> Download new episodes of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn every Monday at Podcast One and on the Podcast One app, or you can subscribe at iTunes. And don't forget to rate, review, and share. President Trump denies it. 
I'm Rita Foley with an AP News Minute. President Trump denies on Twitter using vulgar language when questioning why the U.S. would accept more immigrants from Haiti and African nations. 17 dead, 43 missing in Southern California after Tuesday's heavy rain and devastating mudslides. Santa Barbara County Sheriff Bill Brown is asking people to evacuate some areas so search and rescue crews can do their jobs. It is seriously impacting the ability of search and rescue, public works, other first responders and repair crews to clear roadways and to engage in search and rescue repair and damage assessment operations. Missouri Governor and former Navy SEAL Eric Greitens is now under investigation after acknowledging an extramarital affair but denying anything more, including accusations that he tried to blackmail the woman into keeping quiet. I'm Rita Foley.